This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. We are kicking off a series through the book of Hebrews. And if you haven't read Hebrews yet, buckle up. It's going to throw a lot of information at you. But we're going to take it week by week, break it down. And I think that if you're willing to go on a journey with me, I think it may be one of the most game-changing books that we study. It's beautiful. The background of the book of Hebrews has a lot of question marks related to it. We can pretty much assume that it was written before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, but the author never gives us his name or who he's writing to. Actually, we're not even sure if it's a he. There's actually a really good argument for a woman that may have been the writer of Hebrews. But most people argue for Paul. Some people argue for Apollos, uh, which is a really good argument for him too. But ultimately, uh, like the old church father, Origen, I think we really come down to only God knows who wrote Hebrews. And it's interesting that we don't even know who it was written to. It was written to a specific church. We can tell by the last verses. But even that is lost to us. It's written as if it's a sermon that's been encapsulated into a letter and sent. And so the way that it's written to an obvious Jewish audience tells us that they were Christians, but Christians that came from a Jewish background. And so part of our study is going to involve learning a little bit more about the Old Testament. And I hope that you get an acquired taste for it because the Old Testament are the tires that the vehicle of the New Testament stands on. And so we're going to really savor it and enjoy as we work through this. But if you were to grab one theme from the book of Hebrews, it would be this. Jesus is our supreme salvation to God, and Jesus is our only salvation to God. And everything in the book of Hebrews is going to fall under that theme. The first five books are focused that Jesus is supreme. He is supreme over the prophets. He's the supreme over the angels, over Moses and Joshua, the Levites and the priests. That is his argument for five chapters. He's going to defend the supremacy of Christ. He's going to explain the work of redemption. He's going to encourage God's people to persevere in the faith. And he's going to warn of the dangers of walking away. But how is he going to prove that Jesus is supreme? I think he does it pretty logically. How would you argue that your favorite quarterback is the best of all time? You would bring up the statistics of quarterbacks past and present. You would show who had the most victories, who had the greatest leadership influences on other teams. Maybe you'd get accounts from the team members. You would decide who, had, who broke the most records. You would compare them against the greats. And what our author is going to do for the next five chapters, which we'll go through in probably just a few weeks, is he's going to compare Jesus to the greatest sources of God's revelation. But Jesus doesn't stand as the best among greats. He stands as 
supreme and the only source of God's revelation. In fact, all of those other prophets, all of those symbols, those types, all the Old Testament are shadows which teach us and show us that there is someone there. Just like someone would stand in the sun and cast a shadow, the Old Testament is looking at the shadow. And then when Christ walks on earth, when he is born through a virgin, when he begins his ministry, Scripture turns to look at what is casting that shadow when we see Jesus. And in the same way that a FaceTime conversation is superior to sending someone a letter in the mail, and just like a PA system at a rock concert is superior to a cheerleader's megaphone, Jesus stands clearer, louder, and plainer. There's a story that I learned this past week, and it was a pretty gripping story. I'm not going to do it justice. But ultimately, a man boards a small plane. It was flown by a pastor. I guess flying was his hobby. And the man boarded the small plane because it was going to save him a whole lot of money getting back to where he wanted to go. And the pilot seemed trustworthy. They prayed together. They took off in the plane. And it wasn't until the plane was entering storm clouds that the pilot got nervous and told this man, I struggle flying through clouds. In fact, they make me pass out. And as the clouds got thicker, sure enough, the pilot's eyes rolled in the back of his head. He starts mumbling, and he passes out completely unconscious. And our poor guy, sitting in the passenger seat of this plane, frantically takes over the controls. And his buddy, who's right in the back seat, takes up the radio and starts calling for help. And so they find a control tower somewhere in Anchorage, Alaska, where they're trying to actually get to. And the control tower says, we're going to have to freeze air traffic to keep you safe, and we're going to put someone online on, on your radio that's going to walk you through step by step to get here safely. Now, by this time, the storm was so thick, you couldn't see anything out of the windows. You didn't know, they didn't know where they were. And this voice comes on the radio and says, Calm, calmly, my job is to get you home safe but I need you to promise me something. Will you listen to my voice? Will you do everything that I tell you to do? So the pilot takes control, and he begins to listen to this guy walking him through, and he says, look, you're going through a storm. Four miles out is a mountain, and you're going to die unless you listen to me. I'm going to get you around the mountain. I'm going to get you through the storm. We have an hour and a half of storms until I can get you landed. Listen to my voice. Stay with me. Don't look at the storm. Don't get focused on what's going on outside the windows. Stay with me. While the other planes were being frozen and they're circling or they're staying landed, other pilots were coming on the radio hearing the situation and they're saying, hang in there. You're going to make it. Don't stop listening to this guy. Hang with him every step of the way. And sure enough, the voice leads them through the storm, brings them down to a runway, which ironically was lit with lights in the shape of a cross, and he lands the plane. That night, the airport put them up in a hotel, and a knock came on his door at 4 a.m., and he opened the door, and a man said, are you David? And he said, I am. And he said, I know your voice. You're the one that got us home. 
And the man responded, sir, you don't understand. I have watched many crash and burn because they wouldn't listen to me. They don't realize that I can see them on the radar. I know what's going on. Even though they can't see me, I can see them. But they get distracted and lost, and they stop listening to me. And I've lost so many. Thank you. Thank you for listening to me. When we're talking about Jesus being the supreme source of God's revelation, he is the voice that God is using to speak to us plainly and clearly. And there's weight here, right here at the first four verses of Hebrews, because he defends that Jesus is the only voice worth listening to. Stay with me. Let's listen to his voice tonight. And may you leave this room with a determination to stay with him for the rest of your lives. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So how did his ancestors hear God's voice? Through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Let's pause there for a second. You see, we all have a pretty big problem. And the problem is that we are stuck in a box, the box of the natural world, the physical realm. We have no access. We have no exit into a supernatural realm, into a spiritual realm. We're stuck in the box. But every religion is an attempt to push up against the wall of the box and try to poke holes in it. And yet every religion fails, except that what is supernatural, who is transcendent, who is God outside of the box would love us enough that he would communicate with us. We don't have ears for him. We don't have eyes for him. We have no access to his realm. And yet our God would love us enough to enter our box. That he would be the voice to those who are flying in storms and destined to die. We have a problem, a limitation. And God, up until this point, has spoken through the walls of that box to the prophets. And we can read the prophets. They're critical. They're crucial. Hebrews later in chapter 4 is going to say that their words are like a sword that cuts to our very spirit. It opens us up for God to speak. But in these last days, there is a superior form of hearing God, of knowing his revelation, of understanding his will, and that is the Son of God. You see, the prophets had limitations, from the author of Hebrews, there was three big limitations. One, all of those revelations were old, long ago. They were scattered throughout time, at many times. And these revelations came in many sort of mysterious ways. They would come through a prophet here, or they would come through a vision over here, or some sort of type or symbol, or even the mouth of a donkey. But God, through the Old Testament, through these prophecies, was giving them these little pieces of a much larger puzzle. And so they could sort of see a developing image, but there were huge portions of the puzzle missing. But in these last days, God has spoken through a clearer source. Someone who all of God's divine revelation is in. 
who fills out all the missing pieces of the puzzle so that the final picture of that puzzle is God himself who could not be seen apart from someone who stepped into the box, someone who was God in flesh. Now, these disclaimers aren't saying that the Old Testament is irrelevant. They're saying that the Old Testament is incomplete. And the writers of the Old Testament and the readers of the Old Testament knew that it was incomplete, which is why they give us scriptures like Jeremiah 31 or Ezekiel 36, where they're saying another one is coming. God himself is visiting. The revelation isn't over. There's someone worth looking to. But in these last days, what are the last days? Many of the Old Testament revelations would look forward to coming days. And all these coming days had one staple, and it would be the revealing of the Messiah, God's man, the one prophesied since the very beginning, since Genesis 3, when God said, you're in the mud, you're in sin. There is an accuser who stands against you. Who is your enemy? Who's dragging you down? but one's coming who will defeat him. And from that piece of the puzzle, it's grown since that point throughout history. In these last days says that that Messiah, that coming one, has, past tense, been revealed. It's done. It is complete. And there are seven reasons that we can trust that Jesus is God's first word, that he's God's finest, most excellent and supreme word, and that he is God's final word. First, finest, and final. Let's keep reading. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The son is the first word, the final word, and the finest word, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. First, he is the heir of all things. When we look at the life of Jesus, and we consider Philippians 2, Jesus emptied himself and stepped down from glory and became a servant in every respect. Jesus was born in a stable. He was laid in the trough where animals eat because they didn't have a crib. Jesus was raised in an unknown, unimportant family. Jesus would start his ministry with nothing. He would live homeless he would die with every friend having abandoned him, and even the clothes on his back were stolen and taken from him. This Jesus, who died as a criminal, who is impoverished in every way, will receive everything. As the Son of God, he receives all that God possesses as the heir of Father God. In Colossians 1, 15 through 16, we read this a few months ago. It says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean that Jesus had a start date. It doesn't mean that Jesus was, began living when he was born from Mary. 
or he was God's first creation. Firstborn is a title of his heirship. It is a title that says that he receives all the Father has. The next verse after that, in Colossians 1, verse 16, it says that all things were created through him and for him. All that exists, exists for Jesus. And further, the kingdom of heaven that God is building and growing and establishing on earth is God's gift to his son. He calls us the bride and Jesus the bridegroom, who we would be presented clear and clean and spotless to the groom in heaven. We are the gift to the heir and all of creation belongs to Christ because he is the heir. So why is Jesus, God's son, the first, finest, and final word? Because he is the heir of all things. Second, he's the heir of all things through whom also God created the world. John chapter one, verse three says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. This is also echoed in Colossians chapter one. You see, engineers can build computers. Scientists can formulate medicines. Moms and dads can recreate babies. But only God can create from nothing. And through Jesus, through Jesus, God, all things were created. And when I say all things, I don't just mean the world. Right here, you may think, that he created the world may mean that it's limited to the planet Earth. But the world there is not cosmos. It's actually, it's actually, I won't pronounce it right. It's aeon. And aeon, kind of like eon or aeon, it means the ages, all of eternity, the worlds, the universe. So through him, the ages, all of eternity itself, the worlds and universe were created through Jesus he created matter. He created space. He created energy. He created time. He began the timeline. He opened up space itself like a canvas and painted matter and light across that canvas. And he set the forces into place that govern it. This is the God we serve. You know, we can fit 1.2 million Earths inside the sun. The sun is 93 million miles away. But Betelgeuse, the, our nearby star in the constellation of Orion, is the size of Earth's rotation around the sun. Despite all this bigness, everything is delicately balanced so that the Earth, being a little bit further from the sun, freezes or closer, burns up. This perfect balance is all through a God who is intentional, through a creator, and that is Jesus Christ. Why is Jesus the first, finest, and final word? He's the creator of the very ages. Let's keep going. Verse three. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. How do we even see? We see because something that is luminous, projects radiance, light, which reflects off of an object. And whatever light isn't absorbed by that object reflects to our eyes. Who is Jesus? He is the one through whom we see God. 
God who is invisible, who no man has ever seen. When God pressed into our universe, into our box, and became not just truly divine, but took on all the attributes of truly man, he became visible. He is the image of the invisible God, the very radiance of the glory of God, which is how we see him, how we know him, and what illuminates everything around us. Malachi 4 calls Jesus the son, S-U-N, of righteousness. Matthew 4 is quoting Isaiah 9 when he says, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them the light has dawned. Jesus is the very radiance of the glory of God. John 1 calls Jesus the light of men which shines into the darkness and darkness can't overcome it. John chapter 1 verse 9 says that he is the true light which gives light to everyone and he came into the world. Verse 14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father. He's the radiance of the glory of God. And apart from the radiance of God, there is only darkness. In John 9, Jesus compares a man's physical blindness to our rejection of him as Lord. That we have to see, light has to be shown into us to see God, to know him. At the end of the story, in John chapter 9, verse 39, Jesus says, For judgment I came into the world, and those who do not see may see. That those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And this is a watershed moment. Here's where Jesus divides the goats from the sheep. Why is Jesus the first, finest, and final word? He is the radiance of the glory of God. The next thing it says is that he is the exact imprint of his nature. This is echoing Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus wasn't just a man with godly powers. He was God manifest. The word here, imprint, is referring to a signet ring or a stamp that's pressed into wax so that the wax shows the perfect print of whatever the ring or the, or the stamp was. Except where the wax and the ring are two separate things, Jesus is the visible. It's almost like we can't see the signet ring, but we can see the wax print. That's who Jesus is. He is the perfect image of who God is. The one who is transcendent became visible for us. I love it that Philip actually says, it's one of the few things that Philip says. He says, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus responds to him, if you've seen me, You've seen the Father. In John 1.18, it says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Jesus has made him known. He is the exact imprint of God, the exact imprint of his nature. So why was Jesus the first, the finest, and the final word? He's the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus not only created all things, Jesus not only inherits all things, but Jesus is currently 
right now holding them together. The very forces that hold us to the ground, the very forces that hold atoms and molecules together, the very forces that determine light and gravity and motion are the very forces of God at work in our universe. The crazy thing is, is that we don't, we're numb to them. Just like a fish can't tell that it's wet. We're so used to God being at work of being within his omnipresence that we miss it. That we rarely stop and see that God is right now sustaining the very laws of the universe through Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 120 says that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Have you ever considered the simple formula of two plus two? Think about it. Two plus two has the same solution here tonight, but it also has the same solution on the moon, and it has the same solution on the other side of the universe that no man will ever see. It's consistent. It's perfect. Two plus two is, the formula is kind of omnipresent. It's the same everywhere. Two plus two is consistent and unchanging. It never turns into five or three. It's just an evidence of God's consistency of how he built the universe to be perfect and consistent, just as he is perfect and consistent. Why is Jesus the first, finest, and final word? He is the upholder, the sustainer of all things. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification from sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I love it because it says it in past tense. By the time the book of Hebrews is written, it's done. The work that God had begun in Genesis 3 at the very beginning with man's sin is complete. Who has the right to declare that it's finished but God himself? As Jesus is dying on the cross, one of his last words were, it's finished. It's done. It's complete. This work of purification that's been going on for so long is done. That rescue mission has taken place and it's fulfilled in him. Jesus in Hebrews 12, we'll get there, is called the author and finisher of our faith. There was nothing that we could do to reach outside the box. There was nothing that we could do to be free of sin's curse. There's an old theologian named Anselm and he was challenged by someone who was arguing with him that they could be good enough to reach salvation and Anselm said this, he said, you have not yet considered the greatness of sin. Sin itself is what we are slaves to until God sets us free. Even our own wills are enslaved to sin so that we can't even desire righteousness. We only want our rebellion. We only want the next simple pleasure. We only want to be the kings and queens of our lives. We are hopeless and enemies apart from God. But Jesus, being perfect in holiness and infinite in value, offered himself in our place. 
He was recognized as God as perfect righteousness, but then he took our verdict that we deserved for our guilt and laid on us the innocent verdict that he deserved so that God would see him as sin and he would take our punishment and God would see us as righteous and we would receive the blessings. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It's, this is how he purified us, with the very blood of Jesus. And it was done. And he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Before Jesus, God had appointed the sacrificial system where they would kill an animal, this animal would die in their place. Something was receiving death in their place for their sin. And so these priests would be sacrificing people's animals, their sin offerings, constantly. There was one tabernacle, one temple, with millions of people. So day in and day out, they were sacrificing animal after animal after animal for their entire priestly ministry. There were no chairs in the tabernacle because they were on their feet constantly. God appointed no chairs within the temple or the tabernacle. And yet, Jesus, the finisher of our faith, completed what there was to be done, and Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father because it was done. No more sacrificing animals. No more keeping up with the sin but Jesus was the perfect, sufficient sacrifice for all time, for all those who would call on his name, who would make him their Lord. He sat down. It is finished. Why is Jesus the first, finest, and final word? He purified us of our sin. And finally, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is exalted to the highest position in the universe and above the universe. He's not just sitting on a random bench. He's sitting at the very right hand of Yahweh himself. And again, this is symbolism, showing his authority and his power because he is Yahweh himself. To be at the right hand is to be at the position of honor, of authority, and of judgment. In Philippians 2, it says that he receives all honor. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is his position of authority. 1 Peter 3.22 says that Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is his place that he judges from. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And here's a beautiful hope. This seat at the right hand of the Father is the place where Jesus intercedes for you and me. Romans 8.34 says, who can condemn us? Who can condemn us? Christ Jesus, the one who died and more than that was raised, he's at the right hand of God and indeed he's interceding for us. Why is Jesus the first, finest, and final word? He is exalted to the highest authority, receiving all honor 
all authority. He is the judge and he is our intercessor. At two different times I've had, you know, it was a pleasure to join a student who had made big mistakes through a trial process, to be with them and pray with their families, to sit out in the courtroom and cheer them on, to pray for justice and pray for mercy and pray for grace. Twice it's happened, once in Destin and once here. And it's such a, it's difficult and, and sweet at the same time. You know what both families in both situations asked me to pray for? Both times they said, of the circuit of judges, there's one certain judge. Please pray that our son receives that judge. Anyone know why? Because of those circuit of judges, that's the judge who's known for being merciful. Please pray that he receives that judge, the merciful judge. Take a minute right now and consider that we will all stand before Jesus at the right hand of power, operating as judge. And if you've chosen yourself as your master in life, if you've rebelled against God and said, no, I'm living for me. You may be the king, you may be sovereign, you may be in charge, but me, this life's about me and you reject him, then you stand before a judge you spent your entire life making your enemy. But those who have cried out to Jesus for forgiveness of sins, making him their Lord, stand before a judge who loves them, who has spent their entire lives interceding on their behalf for them. And the judge himself died on the cross to determine the outcome of this trial. It is finished. Your judge is your advocate. Your judge paid the price already. Your judge loves you with an eternal love. How much hope do we have at death? It's a great hope. It's a fearless hope. To live as Christ, to die is gain. As joint heirs with Christ, with him as our prize to stand before him on that day. And the relationship that you will have with that judge begins now. Today is the day of salvation. Will that judge be your enemy? Will that judge be your redeemer? If you're not a believer in here, I challenge you to make Jesus supreme in your life. And if you are a believer, I challenge you to consider what areas of your life have you not made Jesus supreme over yet? 
The Lord's work in us to surrender more, to go to the roots of things. It's called sanctification. And it's a painful but beautiful process. Elevate what voices have you been listening to? What voices have distracted you? Are you listening to a voice of prideful self-sufficiency? I can earn my salvation. I'll just do all the right stuff. I'll wear the right t-shirt. I'll go to church the right number of times. I'll do my good deed every day. Have you been listening to a voice of rebellion? Life is about me, my pleasure, what I want. I'm going to live my best life now. Have you been listening to a voice of busyness? I'll get around, I'll get around to that stuff later. You know, I've got my, I'm going to think about my college. I'm going to think about, you know, who I want to date. And then that stuff's for later. Are you listening to a voice of willful ignorance? You know what? If I can't see God, I don't think he's there. This is all there is. We're just dust in the wind. So I'm going to live my life now. Every one of those voices only leads to crashing and burning. Jesus is, he is calling through his word tonight, through Hebrews verses one through four. And he's saying, will you stay with me? Will you listen to my voice? It is supreme over every other voice. How do we stay anchored in his voice? We turn to the pages where God's son Supreme over all things, is predicted, revealed, preached, explained, and expected. We study the life, the teachings, the work, the passion, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is where we hear God clearly, beautifully, and it saves. Recap. Jesus is the first, finest, and final word of God's self-revelation and God's will. For several reasons, he is the heir of all things, the creator of all the ages, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature, the sustainer of all things, the purifier from sin, and he holds the highest position of authority in the universe and above. And we need to ask ourselves, perhaps the most important question, what will my relationship with the one who sits at the right hand of the Father be? And what in my life haven't I surrendered to him? So my two challenges for you between now and next week are number one, begin reading the book of Hebrews. You're going to want to have some context. And if you see anywhere in the book of Hebrews that's smooshed together in the middle, like it's like a little poem or something, look in your cross-references and go and read that Old Testament passage in context. It's going to open up so much to you. I'm looking forward to this journey with you. And challenge number two, select an area in your life that has not been surrendered to Jesus yet and pray about a first step. I thank you, Father, for sending your son, Jesus. I thank you, Father, for making yourself clear and plain so that all those who desire and hunger for you from the work that you're doing in their lives can see you, the very radiance on the glory of God. We love you, Lord. Bless e-groups, bless the leaders. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, 
hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.